0: 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, hear the word of the Lord. Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, and we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accordance with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers... Do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ Be with you all. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In his 1917 work, Lenin, the Russian revolutionary, he included a piece of 2 Thessalonians 3.10 in his work called State and Revolution. And interestingly, that same piece of this chapter, chapter 3 and verse 10, showed up in the 1918 Russian Constitution, and it also showed up in the 1936 uh, Soviet Constitution. And so they considered this to be a socialist principle. That's what Lenin called it. Interestingly, 300 years before, on our own soil, this verse was used to overturn a type of socialism, because they consider that it was an anti-socialist principle. It was in 1620 in the colony of Jamestown in Virginia, and they were having a terrible go at it, and most of the the colonists had died during that first year. Captain John Smith uh, was named as the president, and he found a situation in which uh, some people were working, but all of them were eating out of the, the common stock. But those who considered themselves gentlemen, they thought that their job was to go out and look for gold while the other people were were working in the fields. And so he quoted from 2 Thessalonians 3.10 as well and tied working to eating. And he did that to overturn a sort of socialist setup, a communal setup. Now, um, in both these cases, it was directed against a problem in the community, a problem in Russia, a problem in the Soviet Union, a problem in Jamestown, Virginia. And it's that everybody there wanted to eat, but not everybody wanted to work. And that's not a new problem because we find it here in Chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. And what this does is it rounds out 2 Thessalonians because in each chapter there is a major threat to the health and well-being of the church. Chapter 1, the threat was from outside. Persecutors were persecuting the church. So chapter 1 addresses that. Chapter 2, the problem was inside. False teachers teaching false things about the coming and the timing of the coming of the Lord. And now in chapter 3, another internal threat which were, were those who were not willing to work. Before he addresses that threat, we have these first five verses of chapter 3 where there is a request for prayer and an expression of good hope on the part of the authors here who were Paul along with Silvanus and Timothy. And here we have a, a prayer, a, a rather a request for prayer, in which the authors of the letter say, pray for us. So he says, before I'm going to direct myself to this, this problem in your church, I'm asking you to pray for us. And he, he, they pray for two related things. And they are these. Pray for us. Verse 1. Pray for us, number 1, that the word of the Lord may run ahead, may run ahead and be honored. It says speed ahead. It's run ahead. May the word of the Lord run ahead and be honored as happened among you. And if, uh, as you recall, that's what happened in Thessalonica, that the word of the Lord ran to them and it ran ahead and it reached a number of the citizens there. And then the second thing is that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. And these two things are related for the ministry of these these missionaries to prosper they had to be delivered from the wicked and evil men so that they would be free to be able to promulgate the gospel so two things pray for us that the word of the lord may speed ahead and be honored and two that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men and then there's an explanation of why these prayers are necessary and this is a big understatement here at the end of verse 2 for not all have faith not all have faith And that grounds both of these requests. Not all have faith, so pray that the word of the Lord would speed ahead so that they would have faith. And not all have faith, which is why they oppose us. And pray that they would have faith so they would stop their opposition to the extension of the gospel. This simple fact, uh, this great understatement here about the fact that not all have faith, that's still true. uh, And it's still an understatement. Uh, few relatively in the world have faith. And so we need to keep praying for these two things. We need to pray that the word of the Lord would, would run ahead and prosper and be honored. And we need to pray that the opposition to the gospels and those who take the gospel to new lands, that that opposition would crumble and that even those opponents would have faith so that the word of the Lord could run speedily. But that should also always inform what we do here as a church. That's what we're about. We're about getting the, the word out so that it would speed and run and be honored in our community and around the world. That's the, the prayer. And then there's a, a, a neat contrast here. In verse 2, it ends with, For not all have faith, and then verse 3, But the Lord is faithful. And here's the promise. The Lord is faithful. Not all have faith, so pray for these things, but the Lord is faithful. In contrast to the lack of faith of many, the Lord is faithful. He does not lack faithfulness. Therefore, he will establish and protect the believers against their arch enemy. Verse 3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you. He will guard you against The evil one. They prayed, they said, Pray for us that we would be guarded, but we know that the Lord is faithful. He will guard you. Now, remember, they're being persecuted, and he says, The Lord is faithful. Even in your situation, he will guard you from the evil one. Also, because of the Lord's faithfulness, verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord about you. We have confidence in the Lord. Because the Lord is faithful, we have confidence about you that you are doing and will do the things we command. Why were they confident? because of the Lord's faithfulness in his church, in his people. They were confidence about the present and future obedience of the or Thessalonians. And then um, the Thessalonians, in order to remain obedient, in order for any Christian to remain obedient, we have to have our hearts directed. And then there's a, a wish prayer in verse 5. We're confident because of the faithfulness of the Lord that you would remain obedient. And then there is this wish prayer that that the Lord would direct their hearts to two things, the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. How are we going to remain faithful? If the Lord is faithful, how are we going to remain faithful? Where does our gaze need to be? Where where is the, the, the direction of our heart? Where does the direction of our heart need to be? And he says, may the Lord direct your heart Orient your heart, guide your heart toward these two things, the love of God. Always remember the love of God. Always direct your heart, no matter what's happening in your life, direct it back to the love of God. For God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life Direct your heart back to that, no matter what's happening. May the Lord direct your heart and my heart back to his love. Let's never forget the Lord's love. And the second thing is the steadfastness, the endurance of Christ. In order for us to endure, we need to direct our hearts to the endurance of Christ. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 spells this connection out very nicely. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. And by the way, it's the same word here, the steadfastness of Christ. It's the same word, the endurance of Christ. So you could say, you could say may, may the Lord, may, may, may the, the prayer be, may the Lord direct your hearts to the endurance of Christ. And Now it says here, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him did what? Endured the cross, was steadfast on the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. This is the prayer that, that the Lord would direct your hearts to the endurance of Christ. He endured on the cross, he endured hostility of sinners against himself, and may we have our, that same endurance as we direct our hearts to his endurance. So that's, that's the, the preparation for some hard words now. The Lord is faithful. May he direct your hearts toward his love and toward the endurance of Christ. And now, let's deal with this matter. And that's what he turns to in verse 6, this this final threat to the well-being of the church. He says, I know, in verse 4, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. And then he says, here's the command, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. This word idleness, is, uh, it's, it's, it's not a common word, and there aren't many instances of it in the Bible or in ancient literature, so it's hard to know exactly how to translate it, but you will find various translations, idle, lazy, unruly, disruptive, disorderly. So those all are, are translations that you will find. But it looks like, doesn't look like, there were certainly those who were walking in a disorderly way, a uh, disruptive way, an idle way, an unruly way. And um, they did not follow what the missionaries had already laid down, the, the command, the, the tradition that they'd already handed over to them. He says they're, they're walking in a disorderly way, They're not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And then in verses 7 to 10, we have that tradition. And that tradition came to the Thessalonians in two ways. One, the example of the missionaries when they were with them, when they lived there. And two, the specific command that they gave. So in verse 7, Paul says, You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not disorderly, when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So this is the first thing. This was not the example we gave to you. Remember our example. Our example was not of idleness. Our example was not of eating people's bread freely. Our example was of Working night and day so that we would be able to provide for ourselves and preach the gospel to you freely without charge. Now, in verse 9, he says, it was not because we do not have that right. This is interesting because Paul's saying we could have done that. We have that right. So ministers of the gospel live by the gospel. And ministers of the gospel have the right to be supported by the church. And that's established by Jesus, that's affirmed by Paul, and uh, we see that was an example in the early church. But Paul, in certain situations, we don't know if in all new situations, but in certain situations he said, we did not exercise that right. Verse verse 9, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. It's interesting if you go to the letter to the uh, Philippians, you find that at the end of the letter to the Philippians, the Philippians sent money for Paul right after he left Philippi and went on to Thessalonica. So Paul did two things in Thessalonica. He received from the Philippians, and he also worked with his own hands. But he did not receive from the Thessalonians. And he said, we could have, and that would have been right. There would have been nothing wrong with that. But we wanted to give you an example. So remember our example. And the idea here is a how much more. If we who had the right didn't exercise that right, much less should those who do not have that right try to exercise that right. So that was the first thing. And then there was this famous verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. So our example is one thing and the command is the other. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. This is what Lenin called a socialist principle. This is what uh, Captain John Smith used to overturn a communal socialist sort of situation. But the principle is very simple. Working and eating are tied together. Did you notice that in our Old Testament reading? This is not something new. This is is hardwired, built into creation. Uh, If you go back to, to Genesis, Um, chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is before sin entered the world. Work is not a result of sin. Frustration in work is a result of sin. Work is not a result of sin. Work is built into the creation, and it is built into the creation as the primary way in which we acquire the things we need for life. There are other ways, some of them illegitimate. Stealing, for example, that is thou shalt not steal. That's forbidden. Inheritance is another way. Gifts are another way. There there are other ways, but the primary way that we acquire what we need for life is by working. This is all through the scriptures. And, And so what these folks were doing is that they were breaking that connection. Verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, and here's a great word play, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And that's, a, that's a, a pretty good translation of this. Literally, it's not working, but working around. That is working around the congregation, living off of others. And this is a pretty good way of saying it. Not not busy, but busy bodies. So they were active, but not doing anything productive. They were active in circulating around with others, uh, but not to be productive. And now, what do we have? Um, We we should notice something very clearly here, though. It it says those who are not willing to work. It's not a question of those who can't. Um, And and that's very clear. Throughout Scripture, those who can't work that is another situation. And there are provisions in the Old Testament, provisions in the New Testament. We take care of those who can't work and provide for themselves. That is a, a principle of charity that, that is all through Scripture. So it's not talking about that. It's talking about those who can and need to, need to, to provide for their needs, but are not willing to. Now, um, There are different ideas about why these folks were like that. There is one idea, and that is, it's hard to demonstrate, but it sort of fits in these two letters. There were those who thought that Jesus was coming back very, very, very soon. And so it could be that they said, why bother going to work when Jesus is coming back very soon? And throughout the history of the church, there have been instances where people have given up work, they've, they've given away things, sold things, because why bother? Because Jesus is coming back next Tuesday or whatever it is. And so that could be one of the reasons. Um, there may have been an aversion to labor among some for whatever reason, their social standing. But it's likely that the, the virtue of the church became a vice for these people, Do you remember this church was a church that was an amazingly loving church, an amazingly generous church? If you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And so it looks like it was a very open-handed giving church, which it looks like some people took advantage of. Well, there are two commands here on how to deal with this situation. The first command is uh, to the disorderly, and then there is a command to the rest of the church. The command of the disorderly is very, very simple. Now, such persons, verse 12, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work, to do their work quietly, not to be busybodies, Getting in other people's affairs, but quietly just do their work and to earn their own living. Very simple. And then the instruction to the church is to keep away from these disorderly people as long as they are disorderly. In uh, verse 6. It says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accordance with the tradition that you received from us. And then, once again, in verse 14, it says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. What do we have here? We have what we call church discipline. We have where that the church is applying pressure to the disorderly person so that he or she might be rightly ashamed of disorderly behavior and mend his or her ways. So the, the idea here, just like discipline in the home, when it's for functioning properly, is not punishment, but instruction and recuperation of the person who has gone astray. But notice here, sometimes you find that uh, there is very severe church discipline that's described in Corinthians, for example, or Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, where the person is completely cut off and declared to be a non-believer outside the church. That's not this situation. So this is a kind of an intermediate situation. Look at verse 15. Well, verse 6, it says, "Uh, We command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother, brother, and then verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So this is an intermediate sort of situation. It's not, it's not just a rebuke. It's more than that. And it's not the, the, the most extreme that we call excommunication. It's not cutting this brother off from the church completely. But it's, it's standing aloof in order to warn and say, mend your ways, brother. Come back. Be a productive member of the church and of of society. Uh, This is reflected, these different approaches to church discipline are reflected in our church, our denomination. We have three levels of church discipline. Uh, One level is exhortation. It's a a rebuke. It's saying, brother, sister, we see this in your life, and and you really need to, to, to work on this. This is the next one. We call it suspension. It's saying your, your ways, we, we've talked to you about this, uh, you, you haven't gotten the message yet, and so we're going to partially exclude you from things, for example, the Lord's Supper. Your disorderly life puts you in danger if you come to the Lord's Supper, so we're not going to declare you outside the church, but we're trying to get you back now before it's too late. And then if the person continues to resist the pressure of the church, then it's the excommunication saying your life is demonstrating that you are not really a believer. And so we cannot continue to call you a brother or sister in the Lord. But even at that stage, the message is what? Repent. Come back. The grace of the Lord is sufficient for you as well as for us. Now, there's an interesting command that is, that is in the middle of this in verse 13. And it's this, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. It's easy to grow weary in doing good. And it's especially easy for the hardworking to grow weary in doing good when there are idlers and loafers and free riders that take advantage of the hard work of others. And so he says to the, the majority, the vast majority, you... You keep your eyes on what you need to be doing as well. Don't grow weary in doing good. This this tendency is true in families. Uh, if some in the family are pulling their weight and others are just uh, just loafing, it's true in marriages. If one party is is pulling his weight or her weight and the other is not, it's 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 hard to walk together. It's true on sports teams when uh, when some are sandbagging it and others are are you know racing ahead it's true in schools it's true in churches as well and and people get weary in churches because they feel like I'm doing all the work around here now sometimes we exaggerate how much we're doing that's a tendency as well right but but I see that some people just don't do anything and, and, and we're doing all this work, and they come in and reap the benefits of it. So it's easy. It's easy to get resentful. It's easy to, to give up and say, well, if that's how it is around here. I'm not going to help either. But he says, no, no, no. You who are hardworking, you, you keep your eyes ahead. You, just, you keep doing what you should be doing. Don't, don't, get, don't give up doing good. So what's the message? Those who are not willing to work need to get to work, and those who are working need not to give up. Very simple. Now, there's a concluding section here, and it's, it's, uh, it, it goes at two of the main benefits, blessings that we have as believers. And so after this pretty strong rebuke, this strong instruction... Uh, it comes back to two principles, and these are principles that we find at the beginning of the letter, and we find them at the end of the letter. The letter begins in verse 2 of chapter 1, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it ends with, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And then verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It begins with grace and peace, it ends with peace and grace. Amid the three forms of attack on the church, the persecution and the the false teachers and the disorderly members, that church was in desperate need of peace. It was in desperate need of well-being, of shalom, and, and so the prayer, may the Lord of peace give you peace. May the Lord of well-being, may the Lord of shalom, give you shalom at all times, in every way, the Lord be with you all. No matter what the attack might be, external, internal, whatever that might be, may the Lord of peace give you peace. And then there's this signature, verse 17. Do you remember there was a question of authority in the church? Because the false teachers came in and said, oh yeah, Paul told us to say this. Oh, we got some letters. Yeah, these these letters are from Paul. Take a look at them. It looks like there was fake authority, false authority circulating there. And so what does Paul say? I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Normally, letters were dictated to secretaries. But here, Paul says, give me the pen. I'm going to write my signature with my own hand. And to this day, that's how a signature functions, doesn't it? A secretary may write the letter, Somebody may write the letter, but whoever is responsible for the content signs it. And what does Paul say? This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write amid questions of authority. The church needed confidence in the authenticity of the instruction that it was receiving, in contrast to those spurious letters that were circulating. And then, at all times, at all times, verse 18, Believers need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The same expression, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, appears in a number of these blessings. But it's spelled out, interestingly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Here Paul describes what is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor so that you might by his poverty become rich. What's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a changing places with us. You were poor before God, he was rich. He took your poverty so that you might have his riches. May that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In that same letter, 2 Corinthians 5:21, He drops the economic image and he spells it out. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin, had no sin of his own, but he made him to be sin for us on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Trading places, taking our place on the cross, becoming sin for us so that we might before God be righteous. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich for your sake became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. This is the grace that Paul is wishing for the Thessalonians and for all who read this letter, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that interchange, that, 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 that uh, exchange of, of our poverty for his riches, of our sin for his righteousness. May that grace be with you all. So here we get come to the end of the letter. Three threats to the church, three responses to counter them. Now, you may look at our church and say, well, this doesn't really describe our situation very well. Um, if it ever does, we'll know what to do. But if you look at the, the threats, we may or may not have those threats as, as seriously as they did. But the responses to those threats are something that describe the Christian life no matter what's happening. Let's think about these. Persecution, that's the threat. What's the response? Keep living in faith and love. False teaching, that's the threat. What's the response? Stand firm in the truth. The threat, disorderly members. What's the response? Help the disorderly among you. To learn diligence and be diligent yourself in your work. And so we could take out the threats and still have a very good description of Christian living no matter what's happening in our lives. Keep living in faith and love. Stand firm in the truth and help the disorderly among you to learn Christian living and be diligent in your own Christian living. And then at all times, trust in the Lord. For he is faithful and enjoy the shalom, enjoy the peace that results from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the solutions to these problems and really any others in the Christian life. We thank you for the strong instruction here emergency instruction for a church that was being harassed and from without and from within and lord our situation is different but may we have the same responses may we always keep living in faith and love and more so and more so may we stand firm in the truth that is in your word and may we be diligent in our christian lives and help those who need to learn diligence to do so and at all times oh god May we enjoy your shalom, your peace. May your peace reign in our hearts and in our church. And may we always turn our hearts towards your love and towards the endurance of Jesus Christ, by whom we receive your grace. And we pray in his name. Amen.